For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, uh, before we get going, I want to give you a quick word from our sponsor, Substack. Substack is a new service that makes it simple for a writer, that's you, to start a paid newsletter. All you have to do is sign up, publish your writing to email on the web, and get paid by your subscribers. So what I want you to do is start your own publication today at substack.com, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. Thank you, Substack. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here this week only with one of my co-hosts, Max. Where is Evan? Uh, Evan is home with his newborn baby daughter, Juno Ratliff. Welcome to the world, Juno. Congratulations to the family, Evan. Thanks for everything you do as a co-host and father. <laughs> Aaron, who's on the show this week, man? Uh, this week I talked to Lauren Hilgers. Do you remember like a couple years ago, there was a New Yorker story about how these Chinese restaurants all over the eastern seaboards get staffed uh, by recent immigrants flowing through uh, Queens' Chinatown, flushing and uh, fanning out through uh, vans and buses all over? I very much remember that story. It was uh, incredible. I believe it was a long-form pick of the week, the week that it came out. So Lauren wrote that story. She's lived in China. She speaks Mandarin. Uh, When she was in China, she met someone who eventually, um, after protests in the village, moved to the United States to seek asylum with his wife. And she basically followed him and his wife uh, and everything they did uh, for pretty long period and uh, wrote about the experience of uh, being a newly arrived uh, Chinese immigrant in Flushing, Queens. Highly recommend the book. It, the book is called uh, Patriot Number no. One. It has been getting all kinds of rave reviews. I am uh, I'm real excited she's coming on the show. Aaron, uh, who's our sponsor? The answer, as always, is MailChimp. They make it easy to start an email newsletter and have all kinds of great features like one-page landing things so you can sell the stuff you're making. I don't know what you're doing out there, but you should be doing it with MailChimp. Thanks to them. Now here's Aaron with Lauren Hilgers. Welcome, Lauren Hilkers. Thank you for having me. I just read your book, uh, Patriot Number One, American Dreams in Chinatown. And this book kind of, I've known you for a while. Mm-hmm. This book feels like a culmination of what you've been doing with like the last decade of your life. Or, yeah, or my or just my entire life. Or your entire <laughs> life. So the book follows a couple. The husband uh, has been involved in a protest in the village he's from in China, and it follows them uh, emigrating to uh, New York's Flushing, mm-hmm. uh, which I primarily know as a place that I occasionally get hot pot and play pitch and putt golf, uh, <laughs> but that I've always been very curious about. Mm-hmm. So 
prior to writing this book, you lived in China. Right. I lived in China from 2006 to 2012. Okay. So picking up the story when you went to China, what made you go to China in 2006? So I spoke a little Mandarin. Okay. And I was working in LA as like a local media journalist for like a little, it was like an insert in the LA Times. And I wanted to do something. What kind of an insert? It was like uh, it covered Burbank and Glendale. So oh, I covered okay. Burbank and Glendale. So it wasn't and showed a, up in the LA Times. It wasn't in all the LA Timeses, only if you lived in Burbank or Glendale. Right, okay. exactly. Cool. So it was like small potatoes. Yeah. And um, at the time, I, I actually applied to go report in Iraq. And the foreign editor of the LA Times, this woman, Marjorie Miller, yeah. called me in. And was like, you're not experienced enough to yeah. go to Iraq. You're totally overshooting. But you should probably think about going abroad and yeah. trying freelancing. And, and I took her very seriously. Yeah. And I'm trying to do the math there, but you were like a couple years out of college at this point. Right. So I was, I had just turned 26. Okay. And I, I didn't really know how things work. I didn't really know how you climbed the ladder to get where I wanted to go. Yeah. And I figured going abroad was, yeah. you know, and, but, and also something. That was the clearest path to you getting on the Santa Monica insert beat. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I, I figured that going abroad was also because I wanted to be a writer and it was sort of this nebulous thing. I thought, well, yeah. this is a way to get life experience and kind of perspective. What was that? Um, I mean, what were your first few months like when you arrived there fresh off of the Glendale? Oh, I had no idea what I was doing. It was great. I, I knew one person in Shanghai. I moved to Shanghai and I spent the first month or two just finding an apartment meeting people, trying to figure out what I was going to do with myself. And it took probably a year or two before I really figured out what I was, but it, and it had the advantage of being fairly cheap at the time. So, you know, I had enough money saved up that I could kind of blunder around for a couple months before I really needed to start. What was the first journalism you did from China? I started writing for trade publications. I got a visa through... Um, a publication that covered plastic. So I spent a lot of time like going out to like manufacturing centers and writing about what was happening in the plastics industry in China. Yeah. And that was really like the way that I was making a living. Um what's go, what it like what is going on with the plastics industry in China? Oh gosh, I have no idea anymore. Um, well, what was like what was hot in 2006, 2007? There was a lot of hype around what do you call it? Like the bioplastics. Okay. So things that were made out of corn. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. That was hot. You know, things like we're upgrading from just making plastic toys. We're doing fancier things yeah. now. That was the story that everyone was pushing. What like, <laughs> what experiences you had like writing about plastics in China informed how you would approach writing a book that also takes place heavily in China? Oh my gosh. I have no idea if one really influenced the other. I think... Reporting, learning how to report in China and while I was sort of solidifying my grasp on a, another language yeah, was useful in that reporting in China can be hard. People don't always want to talk to you. It's harder to get access to things. And you're sort of dealing with the fact, for me at least, people don't really talk, a lot of journalists in China don't really talk about language acquisition as they're reporting. Uh, but it was a really big deal for me, sort of figuring out what my limits were and when I really needed to start recording and how to feel comfortable asking people to say something again mm. without 
totally ruining whatever sort of rapport you had with someone. And that was something that did apply even for going to warehouses and talking about plastics. It was something that was kind of, as I got better at it, it got easier, but it was useful to start out doing it in a place where the stakes were not quite as high, I think. Is there a community of expatriate journalists in a place like Shanghai that there's any sort of a professional network or anyone who can show you the ropes or I mean there is I was actually I was on the board of the Shanghai Foreign Correspondence Club but it's a pretty motley crew there's more people in Beijing like uh-huh. I think there's more of a cohesive community and I did also I joined I started renting a desk in an office with a bunch of international journalists and that was helpful yeah not so much for how you report I think by the time I had gotten there I had kind of figured out what my personal reporting style was but in terms of how you get access to things, how you do things without endangering yourself. Um, it also it was the first time that I hired an assistant and I shared an assistant with some other people and that was it turned out to be very helpful because you could just do so much more. Is an assistant, like having an assistant reporting from China similar to like a fixer or a researcher? Yeah, or, absolutely. Yeah. So this was a woman that had just graduated from college and she would help translate transcripts yeah. from interviews and also make phone calls. She could just do things a lot faster than I could. Yeah. And so I started being able to do to report more and things didn't take as long and it wasn't quite as painstaking with that kind of help. When did you become aware of the characters in the story that you ended up writing about in the book? Okay. Uh, I believe the main character is Zhuang. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I'm uh, trying to think, what, like, what year are the protests in the book happening? The protests happened in 2011. So 2011. it was really the last thing I sold before leaving was the story on Ukan, the village. So the village in 2011, it had a series of protests. It had three big protests over land grabs. And the last one was pretty spectacular. The villagers had blocked the road. Yeah, it like, seemed pretty intense. Yeah. Were you there during any of those No, I didn't oh. get in, but I, I knew people that had. Yeah. Um, Were there journalists in the village during that? Yeah, this, so I knew someone that of, snuck uh, in in the back kind of... of a taxi and sort of hid between the seats. Yeah. So when there's like an incident like this happening in China, and I think you write pretty effectively in the book about part of the power of this protest is that it was getting covered by the international press and people were doing like weird, like, can you believe it? This Chinese village is having their own election kind Mm -hmm. of stories. Like for a reporter somewhere like Shanghai, that's like a magnet. Like everyone knows about that. Everyone wants to get in a taxi and get there. Are you you competitive for a story like that when you're? No, I don't think, especially at the time, I really couldn't afford to be competitive (laughs) (laughs) because I was freelance. It was a little bit of a dicey situation. So it's, I mean, some people would just go in anyway. Yeah. But most of the people that were sneaking in had, you know, they were correspondents. They had yep. organizations behind them. And I was probably a little bit too timid to do yeah. it. You only just had on that, my own the steam. plastics trade journal right? creds. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I wasn't competitive, but I did have the opportunity because I was writing for magazines and I managed my own time. I had the freedom to go in afterwards and was spending a long time sort of reporting on this village. Yeah. Who who had you sold the story to? It was originally for Harper's, but it never ran. Oh, okay. Ever. No Ever. Well, it, it got to, held, and then it, there was a little bit of, you know, Harper's, I think there was like a power transition at Harper's, and then I sold the book, so. Yeah. yeah. What is the, like, 
What is the general viewpoint of the Chinese government about an American reporter wanting to report on some form of a protest from within China? Complicated. I mean, I don't think it's definitely not favorable, but the way that censorship works in China is kind of fluid. You never know quite where the line is. And I think if things are being published in English and they're being published for an outside audience, if it's not a domestic audience, they're pretty loose about it. So I think they don't love journalists sort of sneaking around and trying and, and reporting on things that make them look bad. Yeah. But at the same time, if it's not reaching a domestic audience, it's not a priority. Hey, I want to pause things here for a brief word from our sponsor, Substack. As I said at the top of the program, Substack is a new service that makes it simple for a writer to start a paid newsletter. So what you do is you sign up and then you publish whatever it is you want to write about, whatever topic is your passion uh, to email. And it's also up on the web. And then you get paid by your subscribers. It doesn't matter uh, that you know how to make a website or whatever. Uh, if you are a writer by trade, sell your writing uh, find the people who want to pay for it. Uh, it costs you nothing to get started. They take a cut of the subscription revenue. There's all kinds of great people already on it. Daniel Mallory Ortberg, Matt Taibbi, Kelly Dwyer. And if you don't feel like selling it, you just want to give it away, they uh, support that too. You can start a free newsletter, which costs nothing, and there are no subscriber limits on this. So whatever you've been thinking about starting a publication on, you can start it today at substack.com. Thank you, Substack. Also bringing you the show this week, it is Skillshare. Uh, Skillshare is an online learning platform with over 18,000 classes in design, business, technology, and much more. Uh, you can take classes in graphic design, social media marketing, illustration, mobile photography. Uh, if you can think of it, they've probably got a class in it. So whether you are trying to uh, get your professional skill set up for your resume or just start a side hustle, maybe explore a new passion, Skillshare is there to keep you learning and thriving. I personally, I look through the classes here. I think it's probably time for me to actually learn how to use Photoshop after uh, faking it uh, for the last 20 years. I think I might take that Skillshare class. Uh, and uh, after that, who knows? Uh, sky's the limit. So join millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for our listeners. You get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. That's right, two months of Skillshare 18,000 classes for just 99 cents. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash longform. Again, Skillshare.com slash longform to start your two months now. Thank you, Skillshare. Here I am back with Lauren Hilgers. It does seem like, though, within the sphere of um, the protest in the book, that the fact that they are receiving international attention is part of what makes the protesters feel legitimized or that this is actually an important thing that isn't simply going to get forgotten. It's like, you know, the, the Swiss people know about this, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And I think one of so one of the things that made Ukan very unique, because at the time there are a lot of protests going on. I think the last time they recorded what they call mass incidents in China uh, was in 2010. So it's been quite a long time since anyone sort of uh, put out any statistics. But there were 
oh gosh, over 100,000. And nobody really knew. There were estimates that it was about 80% of those were over land grabs, which was what was happening in Wuhan. So the local government had been selling off land to developers or renting land to developers and taking the money. And rural land in China is technically communally owned, you know, all things being equal, people and villagers would be benefiting from these land sales as right. well, and they would be approving them. But Wuhan was very unique because it's on the southern coast of China. And so it's accessible. It's very close to Hong Kong. There's still a pretty lively media scene in, in Hong Kong. So people were able to sneak in and get access. And they were also very smart about publicizing the protests. They were at the time, this kind of Chinese Twitter called Weibo was very popular. And they were posting about the protests on there and getting it out. And what would have been sort of a locally resolved issue became a bigger deal. And also, one of Zhuang Liaohong's friends, one of the other protest leaders, was thrown in in jail and he died in custody. So it ballooned after that as well. I think you do a really effective job in the book of depicting this incident as both typical and kind of grandiose and unique. Um, The typical part being that it almost feels like a system within China that like land that was collectively Mm -hmm. held is sold off. The only real recourse you have is to petition the Mm -hmm. county government. If you start going to the county government a lot, the leaders will get kidnapped or arrested. (laughs) You get taken to a black sort of a black site prison. You'll get beaten, starved, whatever. You'll get released. But You'll always kind of like be worried about this. Your family will never really be able to be. And it, it, it almost like feels mundane by the time you sort of realize, like especially as these um, people who've been involved in the protests arrive in America mm-hmm. and there's this this uneasy blend of people making up asylum stories right. that, are, that are very similar to try to get asylum mm-hmm. and people who've really experienced very similar things, but in different parts of China. Yes, I was like taken to prison. Like right. my wife divorced me when I was like, I feel like everyone's <laughs> wife, a lot of people's wives divorced There's them a lot in, of divorce in black side prisons. <laughs> yeah. um, so how did you look at writing about that whole system of which this book is focusing on sort of one very specific family that went through? Well, I think, I mean, one of the, the sort of extraordinary things about running into Zhuang Liahong specifically is that you know, he's this kind of frustrating man with mundane, especially now that he's in the U.S., he has all of these sort of day-to-day concerns that yeah. are overwhelming. And he's also an extraordinary person. It takes a certain kind of person to stand up in that yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah. Like, you kind of have to be a frustrating person because Absolutely. you're saying, like, I will give up all of my daily comforts to be pissed off about this injustice. Yeah, yeah and, and most of the people who are his adversaries in the book are like, you're frustrating, sit down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he's like, no. Yeah. And that's what makes him kind of, he can be kind of difficult yeah. in, in everyday life. It's the same qualities. And I think what sort of struck me, so he came over in 2014. Yeah. And I kind of had already written the story that I thought I was yeah. going to write. It wasn't about him. And... So he showed up at my house in 2014 in Brooklyn, yeah. and I ended up being taking him to Flushing and sort yeah. of it was a weird sort of mutual tour guide situation mm-hmm. where I was the one helping him negotiate the subways, and he yeah. actually ended up more comfortable in Flushing than I was pretty quickly. Well, I and, mean, what was that? Or like, 
How was that arrangement pitched in the first place? Did you already know that you were going to be writing about him when he was arriving on your couch uh, straight <laughs> off a flight? No, I I didn't. So I had written the story. It was pretty much done. Yeah. And I knew he had this idea that he wanted to come to the U.S. And I'd had a conversation with him about where it, I had been discouraging him, I think. Oh, sort really? Of, yeah, I was sort of like, this is not going to go how you think it's going to go. And what, I also... Like what? what part of it? The way that he imagined coming to the U.S. sort of ended in this sort of hazy future of working yeah. hard and succeeding. And he just imagined this place where if he was willing to work hard, he would succeed. And it was a place that supported everybody and was like idyllic. Yeah. He also seems to have had some idea, at least early on, that he might arrive in the U.S. as like a like Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> a little of, bit, like, yeah. Celebrated for <laughs> dissident. Yeah, he. Th- I think he thought he would be a little bit recognized, but because it's hard, you know, yeah. what's it's your perspective. You're yeah, yeah, sure. From this little village, you've been interviewed by international media. You think it's probably still a big deal, right? And you don't really have the sense that media moves pretty quickly and it yeah. moves on from things pretty quickly. So. I knew in advance that he was thinking about it, and I had sort of said, I don't think this is a good idea. And I also didn't really believe that he would pull it off when he started talking. He, he like, pulled me aside in the village, and we had, like, a secret meeting and he, where he talked about how he had gathered all of the evidence, and he, at the time, he thought maybe the U.S. consulate would, like, swoop in and pick him up. And then I got this phone call from him, and he was in Hawaii, and he said, I'm in Hawaii. I might be in New York soon. And then he said, I'm borrowing someone else's phone. I'm sorry, I got to (laughs) go. And I had no idea what was going on. I thought maybe he knew someone else in New York. I didn't realize I was his only contact. And it sort of became, and it was a two week period. So it became clear over this two weeks, he was calling me from different cities in the US that he was coming. And not only was he coming to New York, he really intended to come to stay with me. Yeah. And, you know, John Lee Hong is the type of person that once he makes up his mind like that, yeah. you know, it's probably going to happen. And I was worried on the one hand that he would come to my house and never leave. And I was worried on the other hand that he would totally fail, that he had no connections, that he was doing something that would end up badly. And yeah. because I knew him and I knew his background and I knew the village, I felt like, I was the only person he knew in New York and yeah. this was something that was outside of my journalism, outside of my reporting on it. And in that time, going to flushing with him and sort of realizing that his even though he was this extraordinary person, his story in flushing was not out of the ordinary. You know, I thought it's amazing that in both sides of the world he has been kind of subject to these big political historical currents and I started talking about writing a book about him and we sort of discussed it he had had this idea originally that he would write a book about himself and so I held off and finally he was like it's not it's, you know it's not gonna happen <laughs> uh, I mean for you generally like if your plan had been like I'm gonna write a book about this guy I don't know what like whether you would have been like stay on my couch I don't know yeah. <laughs> I mean generally like like how did you navigate like your own inherent shaping of the story you're covering. And like a lot of the book is about the frustrations of being a new immigrant to mm-hmm. flushing and the indignities and the vagaries of uh, asylum and visas and what you can and can't do. Like, 
you're kind of both the tour guide and you're documenting the tour. Right. What was that like? Um, it's something that I thought about a lot in retrospect. At the yeah. time, I was just doing it. <laughs> I yeah. was like, I'm in this and we're doing it and yeah. we're getting you set up in flushing. It's going to be fine. Everything's yeah. fine. How much of your time were you spending with him in those first few weeks? It I seems spent like all of my time. Okay, yeah. Because it, it was impossible. I mean, and, and that also being a freelancer, you sort of have the flexibility to do this. But So he came and, and stayed with me. He speaks no English. He reads no English. And he wanted to go to Flushing. And getting yeah. to Flushing from Brooklyn is not all that easy. No. So in the first day, he was like taking pictures of signs in the subway, being like, I'll do this. You know, tomorrow I'll be able to do this all by myself. Yeah. And, you know... He, he wasn't. <laughs> so I spent the first kind of week and a half until he, he moved out pretty quickly, uh, going back and forth with them almost every day. Uh, had you spent time in Flushing previously? Even really as hadn't. someone who spoke Mandarin, you weren't. You no, know, I, you know, I was like. Go hang, go hang out. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I do know why. I think I was sort of, you know, I was coming back to the U.S. I had had this. I wasn't trying to sort of cling to my experiences in expat in China. Yeah. It was something that I was still interested in. I was still traveling back to China, but I wasn't trying to make my like daily life yeah. about this experience that I was leaving behind. But then Zhuang Liuhong showed up, and then I did. <laughs> Until it became my entire life for a couple of years. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> But then I went, and one of the first things that we did was look for an apartment for him. And we were looking in the back of the Mandarin language newspapers that are around, and there are all of these listings for shared housing. There are these places called Jating Luguans that were like a legal hostel. So people would, it was, you rent a bed in an apartment that's, you know, stacked up with beds. And it's about anywhere from 10 to $15 a night. And people were coming in and staying for like a couple nights and then getting another job and then going off somewhere. And that really blew my mind when I first learned about it. And of course, everybody in Flushing is like, yeah, man. Yeah. That's how things are here. <laughs> <laughs> so I started pretty soon after he came. I ended up staying. I managed to like get myself into a Jatin Luguan and stay for a couple nights. And then they kicked me out. What was, what was that like? It was amazing. It was. So I, I was calling places. There were people that were they would say that I could stay and then would reject me as soon as they saw me. And then I, I was looking for through advertisements. And this guy came up to me and he was like, you read Chinese. He was a Chinese guy, and I was like, "Yeah." And, he, and I was like, "I'm trying to stay in a one of these places." And he said, "Oh, I'm staying in one right now. Come with me. Let's go check it out." And so he introduced me to the Laban, the boss. Yeah. And I got put in a room with a bunch of other women, and one of the women was from Henan province, and she had just arrived. most everybody in my room had just arrived like days before. Is the hostel like gender segregated? Yes. So a lot of them don't take women at all. Oh, okay. And so this place had one room with women and the rest of the rooms were men. And I met this woman from Hunan who had just arrived. She left her 15-year-old son and husband behind. I got the impression that things weren't going very well with her husband. And she got there the night before me and two nights later, so she'd been there for three days, she got a job at a nail salon in upstate New York. And they told her to stand by the side of the road. This happened. This ends up happening to Little Yen as well. They told her to stand by the side of the road near a grocery, and they would pick her up and take her to upstate New York, where she was going to live. And she didn't even know where it was. She was yeah. like, I don't know, like Shangzhou, somewhere up there. And so she had an aunt, and she packed some of her stuff in a suitcase and gave it to her aunt. And then 
I watched her out the window. She stood on the corner, got into a van, and disappeared. And it was incredible. She had no idea what where she was going. She was going somewhere where her only sort of connection to the whole town and community would be her boss who could speak English. And you ended up writing about how restaurants and I guess also nail salons are sort of Mm -hmm. staffed by these systems of passenger vans that pick people up in New York and take you all over the eastern seaboard. Right. And so I, I, I met some restaurant workers at that place, too, and that ended up resulting in the New Yorker story I did on this Fujinese guy, yeah. um, Rain, who did the same thing. He would sort of come into the city for a week or two and then get a job and get on a bus and go out. You know, he went as far as, I think, Alabama sometimes and then work for a couple months and come back. How, uh, how are you regarded by people? Like you're staying at this hostel, you're asking people who have often unclear immigration and employment statuses about their life and what they're doing and what do people think of you are people willing to talk to you um it took a long time to sort of meet people that were both willing that weren't just talking to me because of the sort of novelty of talking to you there's there's a lot of like i've never talked to an american who speaks mandarin before like what are you doing there's a lot of kind of initial excitement about that and then there's a lot of skepticism. Yeah. Um, I've had people like run from me on the street when I tried to ask them questions. Uh, it just took a lot of time. I ended up, for that story, I ended up, I spent a couple weeks hanging out at the employment agencies, talking to people, explaining who I was, and then following up with them over chat. So finally... You know, there were probably two or three people that I could have followed for that story who were willing to participate. Yeah. But everyone was pretty nervous about it. And it took about, you know, a month or so of, like, chatting with them when they were on the road and then trying to reconnect with them when they came through Manhattan. When you're trying to write a story like that that's about a system, Mm -hmm. and I would say that's a system, the system that you depict in this book is Mm -hmm. the system through which new Chinese immigrants are processed through flushing and Mm -hmm. start lives in America. Um, If you're going to pick one person or one couple, um, in the case of that story, uh, it was a restaurant worker. In the case Mm -hmm. of this story, it's uh, Zhuang Mm -hmm. and his wife, Little Yan. Like, why them? Why not the next person you encountered? What what makes a good subject for a story like this? Well, I mean, for Zhuang and Little Yen, they picked me more than I picked <laughs> them. I think it's some combination of like... Yeah, you, did, you didn't want to like uh, try five or six different people coming to stay in your apartment <laughs> and see how they do it. <laughs> but I think it is, it is like some combination of sort of serendipity. Yeah. You know, I was really lucky that Zhuang Liahong and, and Little Yen were the people that ended up coming. Yeah. And... People that have thought about, so I ended up following two other people in in Flushing for the book, and Karen is the other woman that Mm -hmm. I follow, and I I really- She's she's the woman that little Yan meets in school. In school, and I'd also, so I went to classes with little Yan and talked to a bunch of her classmates, and I met this woman, Karen, who was interested in talking to me and also had thought a lot about her situation. Like, she really, you know, some people don't want to talk about it or- Mm -hmm. Or trying not to think about it. And Karen had really, she was thinking about the fact that she'd ended up in the United States. She was also from Hunan and had spent a miserable first year trying to just 
survive and keep her head above water. And now is really thinking deeply about what it meant that she was in the United States and what she needed to be successful and happy. And so it's an extraordinary thing to be with someone who is both thoughtful about their situation and like can in some ways be a sort of co-investigator because Mm -hmm. they're also discovering this new world that they're in um, and they're, you know, observing the things that are strange about it or funny about it or it's sad. Um, So someone like Karen is just an amazing person to meet. Yeah. In in the case of little Yan and Zhuang, like you're also like fielding emails from their immigration attorney and in some Mm -hmm. ways a part of their story. um, Like, did you ever say, did you draw lines of like, this is how much I can or can't influence their story. This is how much I can or can't help them. Like, how did you navigate that? I know I asked you that sort of before, but right. um, it's not just the staying with you. Like, you're also, like, part of the legal process b- right. that they're trying to unfold. Right. So I, I get involved in their asylum case because he asked me originally to, to call. And it was something that I, at the time, felt comfortable doing. Sure. And then there's, like, a system of immigration lawyers in Flushing yeah. and in Manhattan, and they charge a lot of money. And when I heard the first quote, I was kind of outraged and was like, there has to be like a way to get a pro bono lawyer. And then it was hard to find a pro bono lawyer that also yeah. spoke Mandarin. And then, you know, the like with every step, I got more entangled in the asylum case. But, you know, I'm involved in their lives in so many ways. And I try to be honest about that in the book. Yeah. I drew the line at giving them money. Hmm. And, you know, I'm not able to introduce jobs or anything like that. That world is sort of... Yeah. a different world than mine. You know, the yeah. one way that I was actually able to help them was finding an asylum lawyer. But yeah, it's, you know, when you're writing about people, it's a little bit of a, it's a hard question of what line to draw. And I think different people come to different conclusions. And I felt the best I could do was make these decisions and then be honest about them when I wrote about it. Because I am very attached to drawing a little yet. Like they're going to be part of my life Forever. I mean, based on the details of their life in Flushing, you, it seems like you were spending like a good portion of your life in oh, yeah. their life. Like, how much of your week was with them during these years? It's been on and off. I think I was, you know, and it also depended on their job. So if they were working a lot, I wasn't with right. them as much. But I think the lowest point is two times a month, and the highest point is like three or four times a week. Yeah. I'd be up there with them. How did you? Beyond writing about what happened to them, what jobs they got, where mm-hmm. they were living, like, how did you unlock the emotional lives of the people this book is about? There's a point in the book where it seems like you're implying that little Yan is considering getting a divorce from uh, Zhuang. And I assume that that's something that you talked about with her. Mm-hmm. Um Did you take them one-on-one? Like, It's almost like uh, the closest corollary I can have is like, in a reality show mm-hmm. when the people go in the like weird closet and say <laughs> like what they were thinking right. when the thing happened in it. Uh-huh. Like how did you report that dimension of the story? Part of the reporting was just me sort of hanging around a lot with them and watching things happen. And then there were sort of more formal interviews where I would sit down with them and talk to them about their thoughts. And both of them were incredibly, I mean, this is also, I think a, a, a very lucky thing drawing as frustrating and you know he has sort of these village values when it comes to whether women should work and things like that he's very willing to criticize himself and sort of 
you know, if you ask him uncomfortable questions, he will sit down and engage with you. And the same goes, you know, it took some time, but the same goes for little Yen. And they're pretty funny about it now. So she, you know, and they were having all of these arguments and they would sort of, I would get both sides of the argument. And I was definitely splitting them up. They wouldn't talk about their sort of marital difficulties in the same, they wouldn't be as candid if they were both in the room. But now I think it, a lot of it has passed and they sort of joke that little Yen used to say Zhuang was good at eating but lazy. Like you're a good eater but you're a lazy worker. And that he will sort of talk about that now. and he, He'll be like, yeah, it made me feel really bad that she was <laughs> saying that. Yeah. But it, it was all, you know, when you got them talking, it was all pretty out in the open. And they also knew that I was, you know, I was going over it with them and saying, look, I'm writing about this as well. And I think they were, I mean, one of the very wonderful and amazing things about them is that they were like, yes, you know, this is the truth and we are fine if you're writing the truth. The book has a, a split narrative between the period when they first arrived in America and their final period in China when these protests happened, when he was imprisoned. How did you go about recreating the Chinese years that you weren't there for with the same level of depth and specificity to the American years? Because a lot of the stuff like you're describing like what he was feeling during this protest and what she was feeling when he was imprisoned. Um, how did you go about putting that together? A lot of this stuff just comes down to the time that I had with them. So I had, a, you know, I've known them for a long time. I've yep. we, at this point spent hours and hours discussing this stuff. So we talked about, I've talked with Zhuang about his childhood countless times. And that's something that you. I'm just sort of relying on his own narrative. I kind of, you know, I, I met his father. I've been in the village. I knew his friends. So I know, you know, some things have been confirmed, but a lot of it is just him retelling his story. And the same goes for Little Yen. Little Yen, is, she was a harder person to draw out. But on, you know, the third or fourth retelling of a story, she details come out that weren't there in the very beginning. Little Yen was very much, when I first started talking to her, like, why do you care about this? This yeah. is really boring. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm exciting or unusual in any way at all. But she was hilarious. There's a line in the book about when Zhuang also got thrown in jail during the protests. And this was like, the it was the first time I talked to her about it. And it was the first thing I was like, well, one of his friends, they got married at the same time. And one of his friends who was also thrown in jail, his girlfriend at the time was like, I will wait for you no matter how long it takes. And when Zhuang got out of jail, apparently he asked little Yen, he was like, well, would you have waited for me too? And she said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and she told me the story and she was like, it didn't sound good, but it was, you know, honest. That's the kind of person she is. She's just pretty straightforward when you're talking about this kind of stuff. Did you have a target of how long you needed to do this book? Like when you're like living as a freelancer and you're spending multiple days a week and flushing, which is not something you're getting paid for <laughs> up front. Like how do you fit a project like this into your life? Well, I also, um, I was also lucky in that regard and that, so I was spending a lot of time with them and then, you know, also continuing to freelance and then, so I sold a book proposal and got an advance at the same time that I had a child myself. Yeah. So it all, the timing worked out really well. 
and I gave myself they gave me a, a year and a half to deliver the manuscript so I gave myself a year of reporting yeah you know it was I don't know what I would have done in my first year of having a kid it was something that really worked out in terms of my home life as well because I wasn't having to travel outside of the city it was something I could do in New York so I think I was just extremely lucky that I was able to do both things are you like when you know that and you're like, okay, I got a year and a half, it's a year and a half in the life of this guy? Like, are you like, come on, like, go faster, like, let's make something happen? Like, did you think about this book needs to have this kind of an arc? It has, they need to end up somewhere at the end of this time. I mean, stuff is still going on. Yeah, it hasn't it's, it's ended. Not exact, I mean, uh, the story goes on forever. Would be right. Way to it, we really this. could go on forever. Yeah. That was. I had a different. When I sold the proposal, I thought I knew they were trying to get their son over. So I thought, well, hopefully they'll get their son over and that will be like the ending of the book, maybe. And then it, a lot of other stuff just kept happening. And so their son comes over and then the book continues. <laughs> and But I did have, and I wrote the last chapter after turning in the rest of the manuscript. So I had an extra sort of three months to kind of figure out what to end on. And I had this day at the zoo with uh, little Yen and Karen where we ended up talking about whether their kids were American or not. And it was just, that was the conversation. And that was clearly uh, the conversation to end on, I think. So, you know, I just waited and I tell I found the, the right moment. But stuff is still happening. <laughs> 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 their lives are not totally settled still. I think a lot of my favorite um, nonfiction comes from, uh, particularly at book length, comes from people who just go hang out with someone for a really <laughs> long period of time. I'm thinking of like random family, right. um, the spirit catches you and you fall down. What kind of advice would you give to a writer who wanted to do a project like this where they were going to be like really hanging out with someone <laughs> a lot, you know? I think it's just patience and time. I mean, like I think everything in my life has come because I'm like persistent. Yeah. I think persistence is really the main thing that you need. You just need to spend a lot of time with people. And it's awkward. You also have to, I think, I read something when I was first starting out as a journalist in China. It was like, make a discipline about being uncomfortable. And I think that's that's very helpful. Like, you're going to feel uncomfortable a lot yeah. of the time and just decide to be okay with it and keep going with it. I've talked to people on this show who do like war reporting kind of stuff in Iraq or international reporting, and they'll say like, "Oh, the most important part is to really pay attention to details. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if you're only going to go and be in this village for eight hours or mm -hmm. you know, embedded with this troop, like, really, you have to just like immerse yourself in the details. When you're nine months in and you're at like <laughs> flushing for like the third or fourth day that week, like, how did you keep recording all of that detail?" So I, I do a couple of things. I photograph stuff. I record. I take notes, depending on the day. <laughs> um, and I also... Like photographs, just like the I'll room just be you're like, in. Yeah, I'll just, like, <laughs> I'll just like take a little video of where I'm sitting. Yeah. You know, everyone goes to the bathroom and I'll just like, yeah. here I am in the democracy office. Um, but also I will... And this was something my first editor at Harper's suggested that I do on my the first long form story I ever wrote was to write, at the time I was writing emails to my sister. So the end of each sort of reporting day, 
just write something in the first person that's easy and sums up what happened and what struck you in you know a conversational way. And so I try to do that after every day of reporting. Now I just do it for myself, but it helps you sort of keep those things fresh. So I've end, I end up with like gazillions of words of like random musings on insignificant things, but it's a great resource to have when you go back and are trying to write a book length thing. When you take like a picture or something that like ultimately contributes to the description of that room in the book right so a memory of what day you were in that room yeah exactly and so you'll go back and you'll like look at a post you know like there's a poster of Abe Lincoln on Tanya and June's wall and so you can go back and check and make sure that that's what it actually said (laughs) it really is Abe Lincoln (laughs) (laughs) exactly well you know you have this memory of it and you have you know different so that in this way you've recorded it maybe in different ways so if you know one of those ways slips you have backups what um? What do you want to do from here? What's next? Oh gosh, I hate that question. I don't know. I'm not sure. Are you still like freelancing? Yeah, I think I'm going to go back and do a couple magazine stories. Mm-hmm. I don't have like a book, a second book waiting yeah. in the wings. And I also don't know if I'm, you know, I don't know if I'm going to keep writing exclusively about China forever. Although it's a hard habit to shake. Sort yeah, of, um, I mean, are you like, are you flooded with stories about? China that are interesting to you? I have a lot of ideas about China stories. And I also think now, you know, I spent some time in China writing about authoritarianism. And I think now those questions have gone more global. Yeah. You know, when you're living in China, you really notice the ways in which you interact with the state. And I think that is becoming more of a daily reality for us as well. Yeah. Um, when you were writing about authoritarianism and living in China, mm-hmm. like, would you ask people, like, how do you feel when you interact with the state? Or, like, I was talking to, so I did a story for Harper's on Borshi Lai. I don't know if this, it was this politician in Chongqing who got taken out. Well, I say got taken out. He was accused of sort of helping his wife murder a British citizen. Yeah. And it was unclear, and it's still unclear, whether this was a political takedown, which I think is very likely, or if they were actually involved in the murder of this British citizen. And I talked a lot, I was talking to a lot of people about how, what what they believed, like what sources of news they would believe, like how did they build their picture of reality? And that was pretty fascinating. I have a friend that said she would only believe things that were erased from the internet. So, like, you know, if it got censored, it was probably true. But it just gives you the sense that it was, it's very unmooring not to know what sources to believe and what's true or not. And you end up sort of constructing your reality at random. Is conspiracy theory big in China? Yes. I think one of the interesting things about it is how when you don't have this reliable source of information that you believe, rumors take on this sort of outsized significance. Yeah. Um, Because, you know, there are pieces in the rumors that are true. There are pieces in the official narrative that are true. And like you just do your best to try and pick out the things that ring true from each story. And I don't really talk about this in the book that much, but one of the really amazing things to watch and one of the really the things about the American dream that rung true were people coming from China and being able to tell their story in a way that it wasn't undermined. So Mm. you were, you know this happened, it was real, it has significance. And I think 
being censored in China and having people sort of say, well, you know, it wasn't as bad as you were saying, you know, yep. being undermined in that way is it, it can really impact a person. It can make them it's like pretty depressing. Yeah. Basically. And so coming to the U.S. and telling the story and having people listen to it is a really meaningful and important kind of act. Yeah. I mean, it, it was very I felt emotional while I was reading the book, sort of like that a lot of the people who are coming to America want to have their asylum or visa processed as a way to confirm that what mm-hmm. happened to them was corrupt or abusive or that they were mistreated. Right. But that is not really what the asylum system is set up. <laughs> you know, it's not right. a it's not a human rights tribunal. It's a uh, administrative it's processing like this, facility, yeah, you know, exactly. like it, it's not there <laughs> to judge the Chinese party regimes that have wronged you. Right. Which I think is extremely frustrating yeah. when you're like, look how awful this was. And they're like, well, we're we're processing your application. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Uh, <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for coming on doing this. Thank you for having me. Uh, tell me the name of the book one more time so people can find it. Okay, it's called Patriot Number One, American Dreams in Chinatown. Very good. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer. Thanks to her. Thanks to our intern, Angela Velez. And thanks to our sponsors, Substack, Skillshare, and MailChimp. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.